Hello, and welcome to the Speaking Out podcast from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Our goal is to highlight our programs and the amazing work that they're doing around the state, provide discussion around the topics of domestic violence, and create an environment of education and empowerment for anyone that may be experiencing domestic violence. This week, we are spotlighting one of our newest staff members here at NMCADV. Join us for our conversation with Melissa N. Dean, our new Administrative Membership Coordinator. All right. Thank you so much for meeting with me today, Melissa, and for letting us all get to know you a little better. Could you introduce yourself and tell us when you started working with us, as well as a little bit about your new position? Sure. So my name is Melissa Dean. I started, it's coming up on a month. I started on April 25th was my first day. And I remember the date because I was just very excited, so excited to join this organization. My title is Administrative Membership Coordinator. So I'm still really learning the role. I'm learning some of what it's going to entail, but what I'm gleaning is a lot of it is going to be supporting the existing members of the coalition. We have members as organizational and principals. I'm still learning all the terminology and to provide administrative support to them and to all the other staff members of the coalition. So I'm not great at defining what I'm here for quite yet, but it's just a work in progress, I suppose. I can speak for myself and just say that I'm so excited to have you here and to have your help. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? What did you do before this job? Sure. So before this, I was involved with an Albuquerque-based nonprofit whose mission was veteran suicide prevention. I got pulled into that. My partner is a disabled Army veteran who served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, My father was a Vietnam-era veteran. Both my granddad served in the military. So I just was around military culture my whole life. And suicide is a huge problem among our veteran population, even active service members. It's something like four times the civilian rate of suicide. And so I was really drawn into that field. I worked at a wellness center, kind of as I started out part-time, just filling in here and there, doing filing and stuff, and worked up to being the operations director, which was really cool experience to kind of be able to develop a role for myself and build it into something that I really love to do. So it was really just about working with court programs where we had veteran diversion programs and coming up with community service projects and different activities that could help to build a support network for veterans who were trying to transition after their time in the service. So that was my start into it. Before that, I think it was behavioral health issues was primarily what my professional experience had been with and being with counseling agencies and a transitional living apartment complex. So that had been my experience. The place that I was at before this was my first experience with veterans. But professionally, I typically, I guess, gravitate towards the nonprofit sector. It's just where I fit in best and where I like to feel like I'm working towards a greater purpose or I'm doing what I can to improve community strength and just the standing of others. We all have to earn money, but it's wonderful when you can do it by helping others. It's a great feeling. So that's always what I've been drawn to. And so in that respect, I started going to school for social work. That's what I thought best to get a degree around it and went. By the time I had finished up the degree program, I felt like it wasn't the best. I know there's many different hats you can wear as a social worker. 
but all of them have a high burnout rate and all of them have a, a need for really strong boundaries and really strong ability to exercise a disciplined regimen of self-care, which I don't necessarily have. It's very easy for me to get caught up in my work. And so I just thought, I don't know that that's the title that is best suited for me. And so at the end of my degree program, I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I'm just trying to filling it out and seeing where I fit in best. So it's a little about me. Thank you for sharing all of that. What do you think would be probably one of the most important aspects of your job that you have? I think that really the coalition, not only is it about organizing, being like a, a backbone and a liaison between all of the providers that we have around the state, you know, and I, I really appreciate that about the coalition. And so I think that my role is kind of just best to serve everybody else. I'm so excited about learning that part and learning how best to serve not only our members, but also the other staff that exists here. I came into this team and I was just blown away before I even interviewed for the position. I was looking at meet our team and looking at this list of the different people who work here. And it was just an incredible list of colleagues that I got to join. I was just so excited about that. It's hard to say what the most important part is. I feel like it's all so important, but I think my role will be just to fit in where I can to make it as easy as possible for every member of the team to do what they do best. Because everybody here seems like they shine in such a bright way and have so much to offer that I want to just be sure that I'm doing everything that I can to make that possible. And I see what we do for the community and what we do for our organizations. And I love that education is a part of that. And I love that we get to be part of that. It's hard to say what's most important. I think it all is just extremely important. And I'm so excited to belong somewhere where everything that we do, I can feel, is really important and really outstanding. I love that you said that because I started here as an administrative assistant. And you can often feel like, well, I'm just doing paperwork. I'm just sending emails. And your work is so important to giving everybody the ability to do their work. And so I'm so glad that you recognize that and know how valuable you are to us. So I'm so glad that you're here. And I want you to know that. Um, Thank you. I hope so. I I still feel like I'm still figuring it out. And so I I feel like I'm, I don't want to make work harder for anyone, but it's just the nature of the beast when you start somewhere, like somebody has to train you. And so I know that I'm taking away from everyone's attention to what they have to do by, by needing to train me, but I'm, I just can't wait until I'm to a point where I know exactly what I can do to best serve the staff of the coalition. So I'm glad to have you is the leader on the path there. It's really exciting. You're already helping tremendously, so don't (laughs) worry about that. What is some of the work that you're really proud of or excited about right now that's happening at NMCADB? One of the things I'm really pumped this summer, I get to join the CCR, the Coordinated Community Response Training. I'm just because it's something that I'm very new to. The whole world of intimate partner violence and domestic violence and everything around that is very new to me. I was very much entrenched in the world of veteran issues, and that's what I was consumed with for so long that this is all very new to me. So I don't really know exactly the directions of things. When I read on the trainings and on the programming, I just think that the coordinated community response is such a cool approach to it. I can see it being so beneficial, and I think I'm coming in at the perfect time where that's just expanding. We have the three focus sites that they're hiring a community organizer for to see how that works in the community and if that kind of can better serve the survivors and hold offenders accountable. And I think that's a really cool thing. 
the second day that I was here, it was for the multidisciplinary conference, which was set up to serve law enforcement and prosecutors and advocates. And so I just jumped right into the deep end where it was like my second day even being involved with any of this. But I got to hear so many cool presentations about approaches to offender accountability and to help support survivors. And I think that's such a cool thing. So, you know, that's what I'm most excited about is to learn more about the CCR approach and to learn more about what kind of differences we can work towards legislatively and within the justice system to make a difference. You know, I I feel like there's a lot of room for improvement in our criminal justice system, especially when it comes to accountability for offenders. And I think that for law enforcement, it's like the most dangerous calls are the domestic violence calls. And so I do think. If we can stop that from escalating or stop it when the cycle is just beginning and intervene and not necessarily throw somebody away, but try to like get to the root of it and try to rehabilitate. And so I feel like that's so much what everyone is focused on is finding a new approach because what we've been doing clearly isn't working. And so I'm excited to hear about those approaches and to know that the coalition is involved in that. But I think the coordinated community response, I'm really excited to learn more about that because I think anything that's cutting edge or newly introduced into treatments, I'm always excited to learn more about. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. For anyone listening, we are having our Coordinated Community Response Academy in June, and it is free and open to everyone. So if you want to learn more about CCR, this is the time to do it. It's virtual through Zoom. It's two days where you're going to learn the ins and outs of how coordinated community response works. Join Melissa, who's going to be there (laughs) listening in and come to our training. You can find the link to register to that on our website under upcoming trainings. What part of your work that you do are you particularly passionate about? Like you were saying earlier with admin, it sounds silly to be passionate about administrative work, but I think even just my personality and who I am and how I show up in all of my relationships, that's my love language is I like to be of service. And I feel like in an administrative role, that's what your whole job description is, is being of service. And so every single part of it, there's not any part of it that really stands out more than others to me. I just like being able to see in somebody who needs support or to see an area in which I can lighten the load on somebody else or on somebody else's shoulders and being able to jump in and make a difference. That's what I'm most passionate about is being able to help others, even when it comes to administrative work to be able to create spreadsheets or to make phone calls or send out invoices or whatever like little task it is, I enjoy doing all of it because I know that it is part of the bigger picture. It is the backbone to everything. Administration is what makes everything kind of run. Of course, no part works without the other, but they are all equally important. And so I just feel that's why in all my positions, that's the role that I've played. And even in my home life and in my family, that's the dynamic that I always fit into is what can I do? How can I help others? It's just how I like to show others that I care and show others that I love them and love the work that we do. I love that. I'm also very similar. I think that it's really a similar personality type. That's what I was talking to Iris, who I'm replacing. She, you and Teresa were the three ladies that I got to interview with. And I just noticed that, you know, you all three started in this position and then have assumed new roles in the company. And it's just funny because I really do feel like everyone has a very 
similar personality. It's a particular type of personality that thrives in administration or that can start off there and enjoys doing that work. And so there's so many things throughout a couple of weeks of training with Iris that have come up where I'm like, that's funny. That's exactly how I am. Like we have so many similarities in character and I'm sure it's the same with you, Rochelle. I think there's so many things have in common because you work in the same role, you were hired for it because you have particular qualities that suit the needs of it. So it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it does take a very similar personality. So my next question is, if you could make one change for survivors in New Mexico, what would that be? That's, there's so many things, right? Being able to survive a situation such as that, there's so much support that can make all the difference in the world. I think that it's hard to be concerned about anything when you don't have your basic needs met. And so for there to be more funding and more options available to just provide for those basic necessities, being able to have safe shelter, right, where you don't have to worry about which part of town you're in, or if, you know, you're in a safe place, or if somebody's going to be able to find you, to not have to worry about your financial stability right off the bat to have to escape a situation in which your life was built and then to have to start from scratch. It takes such bravery and such courage. And so I just think if there could be more resources pointed towards that portion of it, where you can just have all of those basic needs met so that they can really focus on healing and being able to repair themselves and move on from the trauma. It goes so much further beyond just leaving a situation. There's so much work to do and the healing process takes a long time. And so just if there was more available for survivors in terms of just financial support and quality group support and quality counseling available and just all of those things that you need to heal. I would really like to see that. And I know it's very vague, but it's just, it's accurate. There's so many things that need to be done to help support the healing process and to help make it easier. So that's what I like to see is more money always. (laughs) That's the thing is like survivors all need different things. So it's hard to be like super specific, having those needs met and meeting them where they're at so that we're able to actually provide things that they need and not just assume that we know what they need. Absolutely. So true. So true. It's so much easier to say that's like the kind of the hot button terminology. And everybody says it, but to really understand what that means, it really, it's, it takes a lot. And that's incredible that you recognize that and bring it up, like to truly meet someone where that, not where you think they should be at or where you expect them to be at, but truly where their needs are. It's such an incredible task. And that's why I'm so happy to be able to provide the support to direct service agencies and to be able to do whatever we can to help them to do their best work. It's such a challenging field and they have so many obstacles to overcome with the limited resources and not being able to get everything that would be helpful for the people that they're serving. So hats off and just much kudos to everyone who works at the direct service providers across the state. I just have such tremendous respect for them and for the work that they do. I'm so glad that you said that. So along those lines, if you could change one thing for programs in New Mexico, what would that be? It's always going to come down to funding because there are so many great ideas and people who are on the front lines and serving those that are in need and aren't just talking about it from this theoretical place of what they think it's going to look like. They actually know. And so for them to be able to more easily have financial support from whomever that looks like to more easily get what they need in order to do the important work that they do. I know that you have to have somebody just to write the grants, just to secure the funding. And then you have to do all of these things to prove that the work you're doing is actually working. And all that takes a lot of energy. 
when it takes a lot of focus and attention from the people who you're there to serve in the first place. And so I know that those things are needed, right? You can't just hand money out and have no follow-up and just go, oh, hopefully they do the best they can with it. I understand why the safeguards are there. I just wish that our state was more focused just wholly on making our communities healthy and making our communities more connected and making our communities safer for all individuals. And I think that would, as the health of the community grows, the problems of the future lessen. And so just being able to have the financial resources available now and kind of a culture shift, teaching our kids from the beginning what respect looks like and what healthy relationships look like. And for our providers to have the support of the communities and the support of all of the families out there to start teaching our families what a healthy relationship looks like and what respect looks like and what equality looks like. You know, all of those things, I think it falls on the shoulders of everyone, not just our service providers, to try to be making an impact. If it's a perfect world and I get a wish for anything for service providers, I guess it would be for a complete culture shift to where everybody is all focused on having a healthy community and being able to support one another and to be able to know what real support and real health looks like. It aligns perfectly with my next question. It's basically like if you could choose an aspect of awareness to highlight, what would it be and why? I know that there's important work to be done at all levels of development in all ages, but I really I feel like we can affect the most change when we focus in on teaching our teens what a healthy relationship looks like and teaching them that, you know, what you see modeled at home, what you see modeled in music or on television or whatever they're looking to for guidelines may not necessarily be reflective of what's the healthiest and what's the best. I would really like to see more effort and awareness go into teaching our children what it looks like to be a respectful partner and what it looks like to be a selfless individual to where you care about others and you can't so easily slight them or hurt them or injure them to where we hold just human life with a higher regard. I feel like you kind of can make the biggest impact when you're focusing on the newest generation. They're like the hope for our future. My partner has kids coming up that are teenagers and they're getting ready to go out into the world and and just graduated high school. And it's so exciting because everything is in front of them. But also you want to instill them with just so much so many tools and so many ideas that will set them up for the absolute best success in life. And I think understanding what healthy relationships look like and what being a respectful individual feels like and what that looks like and what that does just for your self-esteem, that's really a part of awareness that I would like to really see the spotlight shown on is to be able to have that conversation and be able to have it just more openly and kind of everyone having that conversation and everyone looking out for signs. If a teen is in a relationship that is trending towards there's evidence of violence or there's evidence of emotional abuse, I think it, it falls on everybody to teach them what a healthy relationship could be and how they can adjust their perspective now and how they can adjust their habits or their ways of thinking now to serve them better in the future and to serve their partners better in the future. That's great. I love that. So my last question is kind of a get to know you question in a way. So (laughs) the work that we do can often be difficult and hearing about other people experiencing these traumatic things can often affect us. And so it's really important that we take care of ourselves. I know you mentioned you can sometimes have a hard time doing that. So what are some things that you do for self-care so that you can then take care of others? 
and it is challenging for me just because it's so easy to focus all of my energy on getting the needs of everyone around me met. And I do forget to take care of myself. I have to make a very concerted effort to make sure that I do that. And so I have three dogs that I just adore. I have little Lucy. She's like a long-haired chihuahua. She's my partner, the dog that I've had the longest. And then I have a, an English lab. His name is Argyle. He's my partner's service dog. He's incredible. His training is, it's just what service dogs can do is so unique and so magical to see the way that they can really like help to heal somebody, not only from trauma, but from physical limitations. It's really incredible to see the work that they do and to see his connection with my partner. And then we have a little pit bull that showed up on our porch like a year and a half ago. I had no idea where she came from. She was this tiny little puppy and came out of nowhere and ran up to my lap and followed me inside. And she wasn't chipped and I couldn't find anyone looking for her. And so she like joined our pack, although three dogs is like one more than I like because it does make cleaning the wood floors and keeping dog hair off from everything really challenging, but it's the price you pay. And so my dogs really are such a part of my self-care regimen. I love to go walking down at the boss day. Right now it's amazingly flooded, which hardly ever happens in New Mexico and in Albuquerque. It's usually shriveled up to where you can cross the Rio Grande on foot. But right now we had this blessing of extra snow on the top of the mountains and extra rainfall. And so it's just so full and beautiful and everything's turning these lush greens and just walking down amongst this little pocket of nature in the center of our city. I think it's one of the least used treasures we have. So incredible. You can be just downtown Albuquerque in a five minute drive and you look like you're in a forest. It's incredible. And so I go, it's my commitment to my dogs to walk them every night, even when I don't want to. And that's what helps me. Even when I'm like, eh, I'm really tired. I just want to watch TV. I just want to go to bed. They force me to because I know that they deserve to have some exercise and they deserve to go sniff everything. And so they keep me on a good, stricter regimen of doing something that's really good for me. There's something just really healing and really cathartic about walking in nature and really just to see the joy of my dogs when they get to smell things. Very meditative. It's my quiet time. Sometimes I'll go after dark and listen to scary podcasts and I have fun with that, but also just listening to nothing and having my time to unwind and to process. And I like reading. I love to read and I'm a big fan of yoga. It's really nice now. You can just YouTube any yoga video and do it anytime you can make time in your living room. And so those are kind of the elements of my self-care. I try to journal, but I'm not as good about that. It's probably like a once every three months when I'm forgetting to be grateful that I remember to keep a journal for a bit, but I'm not very consistent about that. So I think just that the exercise with my dogs is really the best program of self-care that I found and the one that's easiest for me to stick to. That's so fun. For your yoga, do you have a particular person that you like to do some of their routines? Yeah, I th- there's this lady, Adrian, that's yoga with Adrian. If you just YouTube it, she's on there. When I worked at the Ford Flag at the Veteran Wellness Center, we had a yoga instructor that would come in. Her name was Pooja, and she was like this incredible instructor. She managed, even when COVID hit and everybody was doing things remote, she was using Zoom to teach yoga classes. And I thought, like, that's going to be very hard to be able to connect with people through Zoom and be able to keep the movements on and be able to pinpoint when somebody is struggling with a pose or whatever. And she was just incredible at it. And so she had this routine and I did it once a week for years. And so it's ingrained in my mind. So if there's not somebody that I'm vibing with their way or their approach to yoga, then I have my own routine that I can do, my own 
movements and stretches that I go to. And then I also like the hot yoga studio downtown. I don't know. Have you done hot yoga, Rochelle? So actually, I did try it. I went with my friend. I did a warm yoga session because I was really scared that like hot yoga would be too intense for me. And it was lovely. I could do that anytime, but I haven't done hot yoga yet. I haven't right. taken the plunge. I'm, <laughs> I don't like being hot. I get claustrophobic when I'm hot. And so I'm kind of afraid that I'm going to hate it and need to leave. <laughs> no, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. I felt the same way. Not so much. I don't I, I handle heat. Okay. It's not, I don't have too bad of a reaction to it. But the first time that I went, I noticed that you don't even really notice the temperature until you come into like kind of a resting position. My first resting position, I was like, oh my goodness, like my eyeballs are hot. Like it's hot in here. But as you're doing the movements, you don't really notice the heat too much. But I don't think I could do it now. I think it's like a winter activity because it's really nice to, it's all cold outside and you walk into the studio and it's a toasty 106 or however hot they have it. And so to have 100 degree weather out and walk into a 100 degree yoga room, it's just not the same experience. But in the winter, that was one of the things I enjoyed. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and allowing everybody the chance to get to know you a little better. We're so excited to have you as a part of the team. Thanks, Rochelle. I appreciate it. And I'm so, I really am so excited to get to know everyone here and to just get to be a part of this good work. I know that there's nothing but goodness coming from this organization and I'm just honored to be a part of it. So thanks for taking the time to get to know me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. We want to thank our programs that work tirelessly across the state to support those affected by domestic violence. Each and every staff member, advocate, therapist, and supporter is important. We appreciate you. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there is help available. Please call the hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website on a safe device at www.thehotline.org. Love our conversations? Make sure to subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. You can submit questions and feedback to Rochelle at nmcadv.org. Thanks for listening in.